So I'm hoping that uh, most of us have had an experience that we can all kind of connect to uh, as far as dealing with something in life that just will not go away. Some kind of concern or problem or thought that just hounds you and will not escape. Um, in my life, one of these is that I have always wished that I weighed less than I do, right? I have felt this way since I was, I mean, a kid, an elementary school kid. This is something I have thought about. And I remember, um, you know, back when I was in high school, I would have these fantasies about this summer while I'm gone, I am going to run all the time and I'm going to eat better and I'm going to come back to school next fall and it's going to be like one of these teen makeover movies, right? Where there's the ugly nerdy girl and then she gets a makeover and then she walks in the school and everyone looks at her like, who is that? Right? This is what was going to happen. I was going to go from Caleb as he is now to this, you know, Adonis football player looking guy that was going to walk in in September and it was going to shock everyone. And believe it or not, that never happened. So uh, life keeps on going, right? I was aware of where the gym was in college. I was also aware of where the, um, the crummy pizza place was in college, right? And so those two things were at war with each other to some degree. Uh, grad school was the best ever. I don't know why. I had extra time, it felt like, in grad school. Uh, and so I started running. Preston and Altfran will remember this. Uh, we, did a, we had a 5K at, our at the, the grad school we were at. And so I got ready for that, and I kept going. And at the best point ever, I actually lost about 60 pounds from like the, my biggest to my smallest. Uh, then I discovered that children and full-time jobs are not particularly helpful for being healthy. Um, you know, you just got a lot of other stuff going on to try to keep up with. And so it's just kind of an up and down cycle. If you guys have ever been anywhere near this, you've had this experience of you become convicted that you're going to do better and be different. Maybe it's New Year. Maybe it's, you know, summer and the beach season, whatever. I'm going to be better about this. And so you attack it and you probably attack it too hard, right? And it's gonna be better, it's gonna be better, it's gonna be better, and then something happens. You have a vacation, or you have a business trip, or somebody gets sick, or you get sick, and then you're away from the gym, and then you start eating things you shouldn't, and then you start having all this self-loathing for the fact that you have fallen off your program, and the next thing you know, you fall into despair and total capitulation, and then you're back to square one. And eventually you feel convicted again and you do it again. And if you have something like that, um, there's these constant reminders. For me, I, sports radio, um, there are four commercials a, every 10 minutes for NewEnglandFatLoss.com or um, Awaken 180, right? I'm always like, do I believe Zolak or do I believe uh, Felger and Maserati, right? Like, which of those guys am I going to trust to be my, my weight loss gurus? And then you look at the cost of it and you're like, what? No, I'm not doing that. I can't afford to be skinny, right? You know, like there's just all these things and you fight with it over and over and over. And some of you may not have had that one, but I'm guessing we've all had one of those things. Maybe it was a self-esteem deal. Maybe it's, you know, body image stuff. Um, maybe it's uh, something more serious like drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's uh, finances that don't seem like they can ever 
get you know in um, taken care of. Maybe it's uh, you're trying to stop smoking. For some of us, it's been a fertility thing. You're trying to have a baby, and it's this thing that it's like I want this different, and no matter how much I struggle with it, it seems to still just eat my lunch every single time. And the Bible has a phrase for the kind of spiritual cycle of wanting to be better and wanting to be different and wanting to change and then feeling sucked back into that old stuff. And the phrase is just slavery. It's spiritual slavery. It's being trapped in something that you cannot get out of. For some of us, it's a relatively minor thing. It's not life, um, life, you know, it doesn't cause us to consider our own mortality, right? But for others of us, it's a major thing. If you've ever done with like a drug and alcohol thing, that may have been a major health-threatening deal. And for many of us, it's somewhere in the between, right? Mine is somewhat vanity and somewhat getting the doctor off my back, right? And there's these combos of these things. But nonetheless, it saps our souls because we don't want to be enslaved to this problem any longer. And yet here we are coming back to it over and over and over again. And today we're going to talk about this idea of spiritual slavery because Paul begins to deal with it in the book of Galatians. Um, you may have remembered that our, our, our sermon last week, Paul really clearly talks about the promise of Abraham versus the law of Moses and how the law of Moses was built upon the promise of Abraham. Generally speaking, if you weren't here, the promise of Abraham is this promise to bless all nations. And then the law of Moses was a set of rules and um, traditions and things that they needed to do in order to kind of uh, be God's people. And Paul has argued throughout it that the promise of Abraham is the most important and that the law actually just kind of was a temporary thing, that the law actually served almost like a prison to kind of stop people from going crazy until the promise of Abraham could come. And now he's going to extend that um, kind of metaphor, extend that discussion by saying, you know, we talked about it being a prison, and it really, I mean, it, it's slavery. And he's saying this because he is saying that if you have gone to the promise of Abraham and you're returning to the law of Moses, then you're going from being out of slavery back into slavery. And who wants to do that? Uh, Galatians chapter 4. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those, who are those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. All right, so the metaphor here is pretty simple. Uh, he kind of gives us this idea of um, an heir to a, a fortune, right? Uh, somebody who is due to get lots of money. 
Does anybody get this one? I didn't know if this was this reference would make sense. Does anybody know who this is? Oh, even the armbands. This is um, Paris and Prince Jackson, right? This is Michael Jackson's kids. And they had this experience. Their dad died when they were relatively young. Remember, he did the dangling the baby over the balcony thing, died a year or two later. And so they were little when he died. And they were heirs to a fortune. But for a while, like you don't give an eight-year-old $700 million, right? That's just not a very good idea. And so like the Jacksons, there are people who, who inherit money as kids, but they are still kind of taken care of, right? Oh, I was going to put a Bruce Wayne and Alfred slide in here. That was the other example, right? Bruce Wayne's parents die when he's a kid, Batman people. Anyways, this is the example that we're talking about. And Paul says that if you're in that situation, you're basically, a, you're a slave, okay? The people who are running the, the uh, estate can kind of tell you what to do and they can still put you to bed early and they can still take away your iPad, right? As long as you're a minor. And you have to wait until you hit 18, until you get all that money and you can take all those people to take a hike. You'll do whatever you want with your iPad, right? And this is what he says the situation was like with Moses. Moses, uh, the law of Moses was to help the people of Israel to go through a period where they were children waiting for their promise, waiting for their inheritance. It was the Alfred to their Bruce Wayne kind of helping take care of them until which point they could then take full ownership of the promise that God had made, the inheritance um, that was coming to them. Paul then does a very odd thing and adds something else to the mix here. And he says that during that time, you're under the control and the slavery of the elemental spiritual forces of nature. What does that mean? The reality is I can't tell you totally what it means. seems like Paul had an idea of it, but we've lost a bit of it. But it seems to be some relation to um, idolatry or demons or spiritual stuff, things in this world, maybe even con um, connected with, say, government powers, the Roman emperor, people like this. The things that kind of keep us doing the things that we don't want to do, doing the things that we know that aren't right. Now, this is really interesting, and Paul's going to make this even more distinct here in a moment, that Paul is tying the period of the law to the slavery to the forces, right? And it's part of his theme that the law, the Mosaic law, never really created better behavior. It told people what was wrong, and it told them what they shouldn't do, but it doesn't actually transform someone, right? Uh, it's like a kid, if you say, don't do this, and they go, oh, okay, I can't do that, I want to right? Just telling someone it's against the rules sometimes actually makes them want to do it more. And so Paul says, when you are under the law, these elemental spiritual forces, these things that tempt you to do the wrong thing, had all this power and all this control over you. But it all changed when the Spirit came. Because when the Spirit came, you are no longer a slave, you're now a child. And this is very connected. Paul, several times in his literature, will talk about when you have the Spirit, you call out to God call, uh, saying Abba. Uh, Abba is, this is really debated by preachers and stuff. I mean, roughly it's daddy for us, right? The reason we use dada as a name is because babies say dada pretty fast. Abba is another um, sound. Babies go Abba, 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 Abba very easily, right? And so it's a name for, uh, it's a, it's a, um, 
it's a, a title that shows the closeness of a father with his children. Um, men, you know, adult people would still use the phrase Abba in the ancient world, we think. So daddy is not totally right unless you still, as an adult, call your dad daddy. I'm not judging. I'm just saying, you know, this is trying to give you a sense of this word. And Paul says what happened is you were waiting for the inheritance, but the spirit is that inheritance. You now no longer have to live under the butler who your dead parents left for you to take care of you, right? Now you can live in the fullness of God. All right, slugging through. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to these weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Paul is getting very bold here because um, Paul is doing something he does in Romans, but he does it in a very tricky way. Uh, Paul has always believed that Jews and Gentiles were alike in trouble without Jesus. And what he is saying here is that if a Gentile believer starts following all these Jewish practices, at this point he, speci he specifies holy days, right? Things like keeping the Sabbath or the day of Pentecost or, um, yeah, Pentecost or tabernacles or Passover, all these things. He says, if you Gentiles start acting like you've got to do this Jewish stuff, you are not going from Gentile to Christian to Jew. You are going from Gentile to Christian back to Gentile. You are allowing all these fake gods that you used to worship to be back in your life. If you go from the spirit of God to keeping rules. Now, this is a really... This is a difficult thing to say, okay? I think Jewish friends of mine would be like, excuse me, right? Because we would say that the Jewish practice should be superior to idolatry in a lot of ways. But Paul collapses these things. He says, if you go from trusting the Spirit to change you to trusting rules to change you, you might as well go back and start worshiping Athena and Aphrodite and all this other stuff because you're going to get in the same spot. And this is kind of him doing the great equalizing to say the spirit was needed for Jews and Gentiles alike. You both had your, your goose was cooked regardless of where you come from. And he makes that much clearer in Romans, kind of a partner book to Galatians. And so Paul is pushing them. Do not go back into this different way of doing things. All right. Verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law. Are you aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman. You have never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband." 
Now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of promise. And that time the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. All right, what? Okay, this is, have you ever heard a sermon preached on this passage in your whole lives? No, and you know why? Because it's weird and scary and tough to get through, but hopefully I can give us hope to understand it. Paul starts doing something here which we call allegorical interpretation. It is something that people in medieval times did all the time. It's something that modern Christians think is garbage, generally speaking. We should be careful how garbage we think it is, if Paul thought it was a good idea. But basically what you do is you read an Old Testament story or uh, a story in the Bible, and you turn it into an allegory where every character or thing represents something else, right? And so Paul goes back to Hagar and Sarah. If you remember the story, God had promised Abraham a child with Sarah. They try and they try and they're not getting anywhere. And Sarah seems to be too old to even have children anymore. And so Sarah says, here, this is my maidservant, my slave. Have a child with her. This sounds bizarre to us, but this is how ancient people dealt with infertility in a family like this. Is you had the slave of the, the wife, have a child with the man. Seems like... It seems like a man came up with this idea, but anyways. And then ultimately, that child kind of counts as the wife's child. And so this is what Abraham and Sarah do. And so Hagar is the slave. She has a child with Abraham. His name is Ishmael. And they think, we fixed God's problem. And God goes, you idiots, I made you a promise. You are not listening. And Abraham and Sarah then become pregnant and have Isaac. And there's this huge problem within the family. Ishmael is the son born out of distrust, out of not trusting God. Isaac is the child that comes via the promise of God. And eventually the tension reaches a point that Hagar and Ishmael are kicked out of Abraham's family to fend for themselves. Paul says in this story, Hagar and Ishmael are the law of Moses. They are, it is a child of slavery. It is following laws and doing things and checking off boxes to try to make you righteous. And in the end, it is just slavery and it never helped deliver you from all the evil stuff in the world. But the promise, the spirit, the church, this is the child of promise. This is Isaac. And just in the same way that Abraham eventually had to kick Hagar to the curb, it is time for you to take the law of Moses and kick it to the curb. Because it is not a child of promise, it is a child of slavery. Paul also digs in at Jerusalem at this point, which is kind of weird for us. Again, it makes us uncomfortable. But his basic opinion is that the spiritual leadership of the people of Jerusalem are so off base at this point in not recognizing Jesus that they're in slavery to kind of themselves. And so Paul does all of this discussion to ultimately say, you now live as children of the promise. You have the spirit. You have a power that is greater than the power of the law of Moses. Why would you give it up? There's this sense that they have been broken free of their old ways of life. That now they should have an opportunity to go to new places and to do new things and to go um, 
where God always wanted them to go. All right, so what does any of this have to do with us, right? Like, this has been, hopefully explains the text some, but what is the application, right? Um, we have a lot of fad diets in the world, right? I started talking about weight loss. Uh, if you have heard all of the things that people think are a good idea. Uh, if you're on the lemon-only diet, I'm not trying to make fun of you. It strikes me that it's probably not very palpable, but nonetheless... Right, we have all these different schemes and fads that someone is trying to sell us to teach us how to lose weight. And the reality for many of us is that there are all kinds of spiritual fad diets that people are trying to give us for how to fix our problems. All that stuff we talked about earlier, your relationship with food, Drugs, alcohol, tobacco, infertility, all, like all those things, right? The lists that we had of things that you struggle with to kick to the curb in your life. People will give you a ton of spiritual fad diets of how to fix them. Even worse, people will put all the weight on your shoulders to fix them. Oh, you have this problem? Well, listen, what you got to do, you need to start reading your Bible more. And you need to start praying more. And you need to start believing more. Right? Some idiot in a fancy suit with a stupid smile will get on your TV in a stadium in Texas and go, well, if you're having trouble with that, you just don't believe enough. And it's a new form of throwing the law on people's backs. If you just tried harder, if you just kept your Sabbaths, if you had the right holy days, if you'd stop eating bacon, if you'd circumcise your kids, if you would just work harder, everything would be fixed for you. And that crushes people. And Paul says, that is you who, who has escaped slavery. That is you, the child who has received the inheritance. This is you, the one who has been given power from on high, the promise of the Holy Spirit, taking all that power and all that strength and all that God supplies you with and chucking it in the trash to put it all back on your own shoulders. And we really want to do that because at least when it's on our shoulders, we feel in control of it, right? As long as I have a next step in my head, then I can feel like I'm doing something. And if that next step is just like a hamster wheel to nowhere, that's okay because I feel like I'm in control. And Paul would say, I don't even know what to do with you people. Because Abraham's promise was always that you would be blessed with the Holy Spirit. That God's power would work in your life. That it's not up to you to fix stuff. That God fixes stuff. And this is why all this stuff matters. This is why Paul bothers with, with, with Hagar and Sarah and slavery and freedom. And this is why he uses these metaphors, the air thing. All of this is to say, you guys were set free and now you are running back to your shackles. Because we do that. We're just messed up that way, right? How many times do people get out of bad situations and then run back to them when they start to feel uncomfortable in the new one? And he ends the whole thing, and he, throughout this whole thing, is this theme of adoption, right? Why do you act like a slave when you're a kid? 
This is um, this parable of the prodigal son, right? Is about a child who comes back and says, please let me be your slave. And the father goes, you're not my slave, you're my son. You are children of God. And we run around with all these problems that just kill our souls. And we're like, if I just work harder, I'll get it. If I just try the right thing, if I read the right prayer, if I pick up the right book at the bookstore, I'm going to be able to fix it. And God goes, maybe the way to fix it is just let my spirit move in your life. Just stop being in control. Stop fighting to strangle it and take control of it yourself. Allow my spirit to move. Now listen, this doesn't mean we don't ever make plans, right? We're pendulum people. So some of you right now are hearing me say, don't put any effort into anything. God will take care of everything. Don't even try. Right? This is not what I'm saying. There's roles for our effort and our participation. But our anxiety level makes very clear that we think we're the one who's going to make the change. And if you think that you're going to fix your life, you will only be disappointed with yourself over and over and over and over again. God says, let my spirit fix that. Because you are a son using slave techniques to fix your problems instead of using the inheritance to fix your problems. So what does that look like? How do we let the spirit move in our life? What does it look like when the spirit starts to do that stuff? That's exactly what chapter 5 of Galatians is about and what we'll talk about next week in our sermon. So we will get to that. This is obviously a logical progression. But for, day, for this week, I would just tell you, live like sons and daughters this week, not like slaves, because you're just going to get exhausted the other way. All right, what questions do you have about the text and our sermon today? I, I think that they do, and when you read that text specifically, um, God does provide grace to Hagar and Ishmael, and God provides for Hagar and Ishmael. But that's not the part of the story. That's not the part of the allegory that Paul is asking you to look at, right? So every metaphor breaks down somewhere. You're talking about the breakdown point of the metaphor. Paul is saying, uh, Paul's only interest here is promise versus slavery, right? Trusting God versus grabbing your own control. And as much as Hagar and Ishmael are, mis are, are kind of the pawns of this, there is a sense that Ishmael is the product of unfaithfulness. He is the product of Abraham's inability to let God do it. It's Abraham trying to make Abraham do it, right? And so and that, that, that's, I think, really what Paul is trying to pull out here is there are two ways to go about life, fixing your own problems and trusting God's promise. And the law is a way to fix your own problem, and in that way it's like, um, and, you know, he's doing things that don't totally logically work. He's saying, well, Hagar was a slave and this is slavery. And you're like, that's just word association. You know, that's not particularly logical to us. But for ancient minds, um, word association was a way that they would do things. Some of our Bible is organized by somebody says water and the next passage also begins with water. So they put them together, even though they're about different things. Right. <laughs> they just they do stuff like that. So does that make sense? Yeah, I agree that Hagar and Ishmael are mistreated, but. This is not the focus here. The focus here is um, trust and faith versus slavery to, to your own ideas. Yeah, I mean, there, there's always a balance in these things. Um, for
for me, a lot of the sermon comes to the fact that when I talk to people about their problems, I hear a lot of anxiety about what I can't do and not very much, I, I know God's going to take care of it, right? Like what I find in pastoral situations is someone goes, oh, I have this problem. And you go, well, okay, you know, what, how do you, you know, what do you, what do you think's going on? And they're like, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. And you're like, okay, well, you know, we'll trust God to take care of this. And it's like, well, how's he going to do it? Well, if you knew how he was going to do it, then you wouldn't have a problem, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just totally, for me, pastoral observance that um, there are not many people who uh, are, getting, uh, are getting treated by doctors for, like, upping their anxiety level, right? There's many folks that are getting help getting down from their anxiety level, but not many who are like floating through life, you know, not taking care of stuff. Maybe if this was a college ministry, I would be teaching a very different lesson today, but yeah, I mean, there obviously is balance. It's just from my perspective as I wrote it, um, that phrase you are a child and you are not a slave. Um, maybe I'm the only guy in the room, but that really hits my heart. Because I was, you know, I don't know. I was raised to be a self-sufficient guy. I was even kind of raised in church to... Honestly, I was when I was a kid, I was in a church that taught me I was a slave. They would have never said it that way, but their approach to how you obey God and how you deal with God is you are a slave. And you better work your tail off to hope he doesn't beat you when it's all over. And so, yeah. Sometimes I think you've got to hear, you are just a child. Stop, being, stop living like a slave.